if you brought a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. I'm thankful for Dustin stepping in the last couple of weeks, allow me just to hear the Word of God. You know, sometimes I get in like a routine of where I'm just preaching, 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 and I need to, I have to remind myself, I also need to just sit and hear the Word of God. So I had fun taking notes. I'm thankful for Dustin, his um, exposition of chapter 5. Um, we left off last week with Dustin um, showing us how Jesus was telling the Jews that Moses would be their accuser. Now, when you think about that for a moment, so the Jews, you know, they put, you know, Moses was up here. He was the man. And here comes Jesus saying that, Mo, that Moses was going to be their accuser. Uh, this would be like your greatest hero, your, your, you know, your idol having a problem with you. Um, that would have been challenging for the Jews to hear. They had a hard time hearing, like, why would Moses have a problem with us? We love Moses. We, we don't have any issues with Moses. Well, in chapter 6, Jesus continues to make this connection between himself and Moses. Basically, Jesus is showing the Jews that he, that Jesus, is a better rescuer, a better savior than their beloved Moses. So this would be almost like blasphemy for the Jews. So let's start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people set down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he uh, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got to a boat, and started across the sea of, uh, to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Uh, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Uh, let's pray. Lord, 
May we be in awe of how the impossible is possible for you. And you are so good. And you lavish upon us your riches. Lord, may we be uh, overwhelmed of your kindness in this passage that, that you provide a way of escape for us. And you are a better rescuer than even Moses. Lord, give us eyes to see how you're at work. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the feeding of the 5,000, this is the only miracle other than the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now we see a passage here that there's an influential leader. He goes up on a mountain. There's a crowd who follows him because of his miraculous works. There's a reference to the Passover. There's food magically just appearing. Then this same influential leader walks across the sea. At some point as you're reading this, um, this gospel, this passage, John 6, there should be bells ringing. There should be like light bulbs coming on. The author, John, he's, he's setting you up as the reader to where you should be saying, hey, th- this sounds familiar. I, I think I know this story already. You know, why does this sound so familiar? It's because these are all the things that we've seen in the life of Moses. There's a connection here that John is doing. When we think of Moses, we think of a man who has a large crowd following him. They, be- they began to follow him because they saw the signs that he did in Egypt. Moses was the one who God used to bring the ten plagues on Egypt. You remember the tenth and the final plague was the death of the firstborn. God commanded Moses to have each family kill a lamb, spread his blood over the doorposts of their house, and if they did, then this, um, then death would pass over them. Hence the name Passover. The firstborn would be saved. Then after the Passover, Moses walks across the parted sea. Then while they were in the desert, God fed them every day miraculously from this bread from heaven. Moses went up on a mountain, received word from God. So with the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, John is trying to get our attention that this God-man, Jesus Christ, is the new and better Moses. John begins in verse 1 by saying, after this, which is a common way he starts, a new section, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Galilee would be what we would just call a lake, a very large lake. It's about 13 miles long, about 8 miles wide, deepest parts around 140 feet deep. Um, John also calls this sea here the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was the regional capital Um, It was the largest, most important city in all of Galilee. Uh, We see in verse 2 that this large crowd was following him. Now, when I think of a large crowd, I I would say this, you know, be considered a large crowd. That's not what John means by large crowd. This large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Notice why they were following him. And we have seen this pattern several times in John's gospel. Jesus was essentially providing free medical care. For the most part, Jesus was not their Lord. 
He was not their master. They did not worship him or give him glory. Jesus was simply this person who healed the sick. Then in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So the Passover feast in John's gospel, it's mentioned three times. Kind of helps you see, like, from this Passover to this Passover, we know that's been a year. Even though it's only been maybe a chapter or two, there's been a year that's elapsed from that chapter to this chapter. So here's another mention of Passover. Um, it's really John's trying to draw our attention that Jesus is this new Passover lamb whose blood would cover us so that death would pass over us, those who had his blood covering us. Verse 5, John um, introduces the problem. Every good narrative, it has a, if you're a good storyteller, you introduce a problem. Here's the, here's the tension that's building. Lifting up his eyes in verse 5 then and seeing this, this large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, the other gospels talk about it, it gets later in the day, so we don't have time to send them home. What are we going to do? There's, there's a little more tension built up here. Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So here lies the tension in our narrative. It's a large crowd. Uh, we later read what the large crowd means. Verse 10, it says that there are 5,000 in number. Matthew's gospel is even a little more detailed. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew records that, that the 5,000 did not include the women and children. So if you're married, you bring you know, your large family, um, there could be as many as 10,000 people, if not more, gathering here. I think sometimes we overlook that. We just think of the 5,000. That's just counting the men. So we have this major problem. But Jesus already knows how he's going to resolve this problem. It's not a major problem for Jesus. It's only a major problem for all of the disciples, those who don't know what's going on. But, he, but Jesus, and I love this, he creates, he allows the problem, the tension to build so that the disciples would then grow in their reliance on him. I love that Jesus doesn't remove all of our problems, or I should say apparent problems. This was an apparent problem. It wasn't a real problem. It was something from their perspective, a major problem, but not for Jesus. He already knew what he was going to do. So often in our life, we think, we have this huge problem. Jesus is going, it's not a problem. I got this. Would you just trust me a little bit? I'm going to test you. Have you just rely on me a little more in this situation? So he asked Philip a question. Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? And we see in the text that Jesus asked this question just for the purpose of testing Philip. Philip's answer is, we don't have enough money. How in the world are we going to solve this problem? He says 200 denarii would not provide enough bread for everyone even to eat just a little. A denarii is a day's wage. Uh, so think 200 denarii. It's a little more than six months. If you count 30 days in a month. A little more than six months. Uh, so this is about a half year's salary going towards one mil. 
So Jesus knew that even if they had enough money to buy bread for 10,000 people, I mean, think of the logistics here. There's no market nearby. There's no Walmart. Even if there was a Walmart, they're not going to have food ready. They're not going to have enough bread baked to feed 10,000 people on such short notice. So what are they going to do? Well, for whatever reason, Andrew, in verse 8, he mentions knowing this boy. Uh, Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, we can speculate a lot on, like, why does he bring up the boy? Why does he bring up the the items? Um, You know, is it like, okay, so what? Like, he has five loaves and two fish. Like, what does that have to do with this? Um, you know, that's, that's enough. That's meant to be a meal meant for a boy, not thousands of hungry adults. Uh, and only John's gospel includes the boy. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they just, it just seems like that's what they've collected, that's what they've gathered. But John mentions this boy. And this boy, like many other good examples of faith in John's gospel, remains anonymous. He's just a boy. We're not told the boy's name. We also don't know how Andrew knew what the boy was carrying. Maybe Andrew had his eyes on the mill, saw it earlier. and was like, I'm going to keep an eye on that boy. I don't, it might be good information later. Maybe the boy's a relative, so he knew what he had. Maybe, you know, he may have known the boy. Uh, we also don't know the conversation between Andrew and the boy. Like, how did he acquire this? Did he say to him, you know, I know kids love to trade things, so did, you know, Andrew pull out this shiny knife and be like, hey, boy, see this knife? I'll trade you this knife for your five loaves and two fish. What do you say? Good trade. We, whatever happened, Jesus ends up with the boy's food. That's all we know. In verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there's much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. That's, that's it. That's, this is an amazing miracle, and this is how it's introduced to us. But now, put yourself in this story. You're a hungry Jew. You've, been, you've heard that there's some hype about this man, Jesus. Is he the prophet? He, he's already been working a lot of signs, healing people. So maybe he's one of the healings could have been one of your friends. And you're like, I want to go see that guy. Could have been you. Think about some of those who he's already healed. They, they might be there. Like, that's the guy. That's him. Maybe you're one of the disciples. Jesus presents this problem of feeding at least 5,000, maybe as many as 10, 12,000 people. And you don't have the resources to feed them. Then seemingly in jest, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish. I mean, for such a miraculous act. Now, again, this is the only miracle in all four Gospels. So for such a miraculous act, this miracle lacks a good presentation, doesn't it? I mean, John brings attention to this story where there's this problem. It's almost like the reader, like, we're expecting, like, Jesus takes the five loaves, the two fish, and he's like, all right, now drum roll. Like, what's going to happen? Maybe some really cool Harry Potter-type spell. Expecto Patronum. Something to happen. 
There's nothing. Jesus simply takes the loaves and just gives thanks. And then just begins to pass out bread. Like this is some normal daily routine for the king of all kings. It's not a big deal. Feed all these with this. This is easy. I think one of the interesting things about this miracle is that Christ allows the boy to be included in the provision of the crowd. It was the boy's sacrifice. He gave everything he had to Jesus. And Jesus allows his meal to satisfy the crowd. I mean, think about it. Did Jesus need the five loaves and two fish? Did he need those? I mean, think in the beginning. He created everything from nothing. He just spoke it. So why would he care what people have to offer? He didn't need, the, he didn't need the, what the boy had. I think there is a picture here of how God is in absolute control. He doesn't need us. Yet he desires for us to be involved in his story. He's inviting you today to get involved in his great mission. I, I love John's gospel because we see God's sovereignty just dripping off the pages, yet rightly coupled with this doctrine of man's responsibility. I think we, if we lean too far on either side, we get to a dangerous view of God and man. So, so Jesus, he feeds the thousands. Now being, imagine being one of those in attendance. What, what's some emotions you're experiencing? I mean, think about it. You're, you're watching, like you're hungry. You're being ordered to sit down, that there's going to be this meal, and you're thinking, how in the world are they going to feed, you know, I don't, I don't smell the bread, I don't see any, you know, you know, I don't see someone you know, coming from the market with all this bread. What are some of the emotions you're experiencing as you see this? I'm guessing you're in awe. You're, you're, you're just maybe laughing at like, what in the world is going on? This is, this is a miracle we're watching. Um, what are people discussing? What's the conversation? I, I, I think some are thinking, I think the context even shows us that some are thinking of how this would be a huge military asset. I'll come back to this in a minute. I think some others are in awe. I think some are thinking of Jesus as a means for a quick meal, which he confronts them in a little later. Um, that they're just looking for, you know, just this quick, easy meal from Jesus. I think many are thinking about Moses and probably are even thinking about Elisha. Elisha is an Old Testament prophet. Now, not as popular as Moses. Even some of you, maybe when you've heard that, you're like, oh, I know Elisha. He's the one that God took up in the chariot of fire. Just kind of, no, that was Elijah. This is Elisha, who's not as popular as Elijah, but yet still very popular figure for definitely a Jew. And I think many of them were thinking about Elisha and the events that took place um, in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there's an account about Elisha and the events that took place 
are crazy similar to John chapter 6. There is no way that John is not trying to connect these two. So if you grew up hearing these stories, like if I'd say, you know, if I'd mention like, um, you know, the, uh, the ark, you would think, oh, Noah. If I say lion's den, you would say Daniel. Like we, we've heard these stories as kids where you can just connect them. One that we might not know because maybe you didn't grow up in a Jewish home uh, or a family that just read all of the Old Testament, in like 2 Kings chapter 4, is the story of, 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 of Elisha. But knowing the audience that Jesus is talking to, they would have grown up hearing these stories. 2 Kings 4 would have been a very common story for them. Listen to, the, listen to um, 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 42. A man came from Bel Shalashah, bringing the man of God, so this is Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Sound familiar? So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So here's this man. He has loaves made of barley. Elisha wants to use the loaves to feed the men. The problem is the same as we see in John 6. There's not enough bread to feed all the men. The servants make this aware to Elisha. Elisha says it's not a big deal. Just give it to them. They'll eat and have more. The many men eat and had some left. I mean, how could you not think of Elisha here? If you're familiar with this story, as the Jews would have been, this mysterious prophet doing miracles, unnamed man, unnamed boy, barley loaves, which is not a common type of bread, multiplying the bread so that all can eat. So some had to be thinking about Elisha. I think even more of them are thinking about Moses. Very similar. You remember when Moses was leading the Israelites through the desert, how they became hangry? You know hangry? Hungry and angry, it's what happens when you're hungry so long, you're just like, I'm, I need something to eat. That's where the Jews were, and they were hungry. There were over a million Jews who left Egypt following Moses through the desert. Now, some of you, if you think like more logistic, if that's kind of how your mind works, think about how, you, how in the world, like think of the logistical problem you would have feeding a million Jews every day. You know, I, I, I pray for my sweet wife. You know, she's like, I got to think of another meal for these kids. This is a million Jews. How are you going to feed such a large group? And, and they were constantly moving around, so they couldn't, like, plant crops and then just wait for them to grow. They, they weren't able to leave Egypt and carry 40 years worth of food to survive. So how would they eat? Well, you, you remember this story. God, God told Moses to tell the people that he would send bread from heaven, this manna for them to eat. Every morning they would wake up and this bread would just be on the ground. 
And they would take it, put it in baskets, collect it. It was enough for them, for their families every day. Any extra, though, it would go bad overnight. So here's some contrast between John 6 and um, the, the, the manna. The, the next day, the manna would be back on the ground to provide that day's worth of food. It was teaching the people their daily bread. Take enough to last for that day. God will provide the next day. Jesus faced a similar circumstance, and in a similar way, God once again provided in a seemingly impossible way. I think that's one of the lessons that Jesus is teaching us in this passage, that God makes the impossible possible. I mean, what do you do when you face a situation that seems impossible? You, you, you've all faced it. You know, it, it's not this, but you, you, we all have real problems that you bring in here every week. Some of you, your major problem may have been this past week. What do you do when you face that seemingly impossible situation? Are you like Philip? Do you look for like a human solution as he did? Do you just crawl back in bed and not do today? You tap out and become overwhelmed when it seems like there is no hope, no solution. Maybe, just maybe, when you just want to give up, when you want to give in, God is about to step in and use something that seems impossible, like a boy's lunch. You know, this boy's lunch provided, you know, thousands of people. That didn't seem like a possible solution. I think Christ is teaching us here, don't give up on God. What seems like it's impossible, it's not for him. So when you feel overwhelmed, go to him. I love here how God doesn't leave us hungry. Look at verse 12. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with Fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Thousands of Jews miraculously eat from five loaves and two fish, and then they had 12 baskets left over. Absolutely incredible. God lavishes out his provisions on his people in such a way there's leftovers. Took a little boy, what seemed impossible, and it was more than enough. I think John is using a play on words, which John does so well. I think John's using a play of words here in verse 12, when Jesus tells his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. If you drop down, same chapter, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day see nothing of his will will ever be lost he's showing the disciples what it means that he will not lose any of those who belong to him this is beautiful if Jesus cares enough to make sure that none of the leftovers are lost how much more will he make sure that none of his own are lost? This will be the theme that John goes into greater detail in chapter 10. So you have thousands of people experiencing this miracle. 
Some of them begin to think how advantageous it would be to have such a great leader who can just speak food and, and, and wine into existence, who could heal the wounded. And I think that's what's happening here in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, I mean, Jesus is the king. They were going to make him be something that he's not already, but their view of king and his view of king are not the same thing. I mean, if you're Jesus, though, I mean, think about it. Why would you flee? He wants people to worship him, to make much of him. This is fame, fortune, power. Why, why would he flee from this? I think people, people want this for the wrong reasons. See, these Jews, they're connecting the story of Moses to this man, Jesus. Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt, right? They, they were oppressed. Now, many Jews are viewing Jesus through that same lens. Think about it. What a powerful resource for warfare, being able to feed thousands of troops. You know, say, you know, say these 10, if there are 10,000, however many thousands are there that day, if they want to just go to war, we want to overthrow Rome right now. And Jesus is able to take five loaves and two fish. So oftentimes when we think of warfare, we don't think of all the logistics. You, your troops need water. They need to eat. You can't just give them a weapon. So now you've got this military leader who can just speak food into existence. I mean, think how, how great that would be for logistics. You don't need pallets and pallets of MREs. You know MREs? If you have military family, MREs are that, it's the food that comes in a little packet. It's It's gross. It's what, it's what soldiers eat. But it would, it would take pallets and pallets. It would take trucks to make sure 10,000 soldiers would have MREs. And they would have to eat, you know, a few times a day. But Jesus feeds them all with what a little boy could carry. Jesus has also been healing the sick. Think about how useful that might be in battle. You're like, ah, oh, Jesus, I'm hurt. And, you know, he cut off my arm. Here comes Jesus. You're good. Get back up. You're later in John with what Peter does to Malchus when they come to arrest Jesus. Peter, you know, being Peter, he pulls out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus just comes and touches his ear and it's better again. Think how some people seeing Jesus might want to use this for this, um, this revolt, this revolution. Let's go get Rome. So Jesus withdrew from the crowd because they were trying to make him to the king that he had never intended to be. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of the strong wind was blowing. 
So Jesus sends his disciples across the sea without him. Sea becomes rough. Now, many of them were fishermen. They're used to, you know, rough, but this was really strong. Um, It was strong because the wind was blowing, which I think is another tie back to the Exodus story. Um, If you remember in the Exodus story, Moses leaves Egypt. They're faced with this sea. There's a problem. God sends this strong wind that parts the waters. They walk across on dry ground. Waters are like a wall to the left, wall to the right. So God caused a powerful wind to blow so that Moses could miraculously lead his people across the sea. Whereas here, Jesus walks across the sea effortlessly as if he were walking across dry ground. That's what it looks like. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, this would be a little more than halfway, if it's eight miles wide. They, they, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They, they were frightened. That's a, I think that's a, probably a good response, right? You see a friend of yours walking on water. I think fear is what would come to mind. I see Nate coming. I'm like, Nate's walking on the water. I'm, ah. But he says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, I, I bet. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Remember, they were about halfway. And now that he gets in the boat, they're miraculously there. This is amazing. Who is this man, Jesus? Is he Lord? Lunatic? Liar? Or just some legend? I'm convinced that not only is he my Lord, he is Lord of all. Um, With these two miraculous acts, and you could even say the third one, is that they just miraculously show up on on, on land. But the feeding of his people, the crossing of the sea, Jesus identifies himself as one like Moses. Did, did you notice back in verse 14 how, how they didn't call Jesus just a prophet, he, but, but rather they referred to him as the prophet. They, they'd been waiting for some prophet to come, some, somebody to come who was like Moses. Um, they had been waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, G, um, Moses told his people, um, you can find this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, I think there's some double meaning there. I think this could be referring to Joshua who comes after Moses, but I think there's a greater meaning that There is the prophet who's coming. That's how they clearly understood it. And here Jesus is clearly connecting himself to Moses and this coming prophet. This is the same thing the author of Hebrews does. He he makes this connection as well when he says that Jesus is the greater Moses. What made Moses so great? Why do they idolize Moses? You could argue it was that he freed the Jews from slavery in Egypt. That he led them, or, or at least pointed them to the promised land. He, he didn't get to go in, but there it is. Cross the Jordan, it's yours. This is why he was so beloved. 
In John 6, the Jews were in slavery yet again, not in Egypt, not in Babylon, but slaves in their own land. The Romans had conquered Israel and made it a part of their empire. So when someone like Moses shows up, who's doing all these signs, what do you think the Israelites want him to do? They want him to lead them out of slavery. They want him to start this revolution and overthrow Rome. I mean, I get it. I mean, all of us would probably be thinking the same thing. But freeing them from Rome was not his purpose in coming. See, Jesus was after a greater victory. Jesus came to wage war against sin, against suffering, against death. I love how one author writes this. He says, they wanted to make Jesus king, but before he would wear the crown of gold, he would choose to wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on the throne, he would hang on a cross. The crucifixion would come before the coronation. Moses won a great victory, but it pales in comparison to the victory Jesus won when he rose from the grave, triumphant over death and hell. Do you want to follow Jesus today so that you can be a part of seeing some cool tricks? Do you follow him just so he can provide for your needs some food, some some relief from some suffering that you may have? Or do you follow him because he is worthy of your worship and you don't care if he ever provides any of those things? See, if we want Jesus to fix all of our problems, but we don't want to have to follow Jesus, all we want is this spiritual genie. Just make a wish and just come true. He's just there to serve you. Sometimes we just want God just to get us out of trouble, to make our lives more comfortable, a little more convenient. That's not what he's offering here. He's coming here to rule, to reign as Lord and Savior. And he's asking you to lay it all down. Like that boy, just said, here, Jesus, take everything I have. It's yours. I don't know how I'm going to eat again. But I'm trusting. Is that you today? Are you just surrendering at all? Are you holding something back? Are you trying to make him a puppet to get him to do things for you to make your life a little more easy? See, this morning we get to celebrate the new Passover. The new Passover is what Jesus commanded his disciples to do in remembrance of what he has done for them. We call it the Lord's Supper. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on a cross because we did not or could not live a perfect life, was buried and raised to life three days later. And now he's reigning and ruling from heaven, just waiting for the moment his father sends him back to gather his people. So if you, this morning, if you're a true follower of Jesus, then we invite you to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Remember what Jesus has done, that he's freed you from slavery and bondage, from sin. He may not have removed all the problems in your life, but he's freed you from your sin. You're now free. He's going to pass over. There's no more 
condemnation for you. Uh, one of the cups, it will contain a piece of bread. Uh, that bread represents his body that was broken. The other cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. So you come um, whenever you're ready this morning and celebrate the Lord's Supper.